when you're hearing your desktop for the first time is make sure you're, you don't have your nude pictures and stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't want to pull a tube in. Right. That would be, that'd be rattling. Everybody. It's very embarrassing. Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 28, I, the worst of all. Using the 107-minute version of I, the worst of all, on DVD purchased from www.firstrunfeatures.com in 2003. That copy is $13 online. Mine is a second-hand library copy I bought off of eBay for 20 bucks. So obviously I didn't get the first one. The link is in the notes. If you press play on the DVD menu, now... This podcast should sync with the rest of the film. We open like so many other films open with black screen and credits. This is used so often, it is often a default instead of used for its original intent, which is to create mood. Anyone who has seen John Carpenter's Escape from New York or Prince of Darkness understands how this is so successful. Our director, Maria Luisa Bimberg, uses the same technique to startling effect. And you're going to see a lot of other Hollywood conventions in Bingberg's film used just as well as you see in America, and in many cases, much better. Now, joining me for this episode on I, the Worst of All, for the first time, is Teresa Van Hoy, professor of history at St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Tejas. Teresa, I'd like to start off while we're still in the credits by asking you, when did you first see I, the Worst of All, and what did you think? I must have seen I, the worst of all, perhaps in the late 90s, uh, sneaking it in between diaper changes uh, while I was a graduate student and dreaming of screening it for long-suffering master students like you. And were you familiar with any of her other films? She's, it goes back to 1978, I see. Mementos, Nobody's Wife, Camila, Ms. Mary. Camila. Camila is the only other one I've seen. And Camila is uh, in the same genre somehow. It is, uh, let's not, let's, to put it crudely, uh, could be read as a rant against the church. Maria um, um, Bemberg's rage against the church and those conservative conventions to which she herself was uh, imprisoned until she was 60. When finally her last, I think she had six kids. When the last one left home, she became liberated herself and became a a filmmaker and just ratted out everybody who had messed her up for the previous six decades, pretty much. So, so Camila is also the story of um, a um, woman who falls in love with a priest. They get pregnant. She gets pregnant and they get thrown in prison for, for the osadia, the, the, the daring. Gotcha. So here we are faced with the viceroy on one side of the table and the archbishop on the other side of the table. So the vice, the archbishop was Sejas, is that correct? Yeah. 
and I the the viceroy changed. The Sorwana lived during three different viceries and viceroines. Um, then the last one was uh, w- her protector had left Mexico, yes. and and was replaced by a man who uh, was was just as powerful, but lost his influence over time due to circumstances that were kind of outside the uh, his control and power. I'm trying to remember the name of the, the viceroy. Yeah, I'm not coming up with it either. Yeah. In fact, I'm not even sure if we got the bishop, the archbishop's last name right. I can't remember. I'll have to look at Google it surreptitiously. Yeah, I, th- I think it's S-E-I-J-A-S. And he only passed away, I think, two or three years after uh, Sorwana died. Dang. Too bad it wasn't the other way around. Right. Uh, if she had survived, he, she probably would have gone into, we can get into that later, but if she had survived, she probably would have survived this entire uh, fiasco. She, the first viceroy she served was Viceroy Don Tomás de la Cerda, who was Marquis of Arruna, and she built him a triumphal arch. She designed a triumphal arch, almost as if she were um, um, Archimedes herself, uh, with all kinds of allegorical references to the lake in Mexico. So this is the second one, this viceroy right here, who was her big protector. Yeah, and here we have the, the courtyard of the convent. And now this is, we can sort of see this as um, an ideal setting. Um, we, can, we can guess that not all medieval convents looked uh, so refreshingly joyful, uh, but we'll see in the convent in several states as we go through the film, which I think is what what Bimberg's comment was: look at where the convent started and look at where it ended. Well, she she contrasts that joyous, almost childlike, bubbly, girly thing in the courtyard with this very somber, scholarly, static Sorjuana um same so that so that little silly butterfly dancing joyous childish thing gives gravitas to her own scholarship yeah this very studious mind yeah while the the uh, the middle school girls are outside playing she's in a very serious environment thinking about the things that really matter so here we get into the the structure of the convent and who's running it and how they run it. I was surprised. I did look it up. You actually elected your abbess and your abbot in convents and monasteries. So they had a democratic process and the local bishop or archbishop actually did not have a say in, in any of these elections. He could influence it, uh, but he didn't have a say, including uh, who they chose to appoint as their treasurer. And Sorana served as treasurer of the convent um, I believe three three different terms, which I think were two or three years apiece. So it was more than just an intellectual power. Power she had an, an enormous capability to to run the finances of yeah. such an enterprise as this. And this was not a small convent. This is uh, I think small was about fifty. Uh, this was larger than that. Moreover, convents were the banks, convents, and to a lesser extent. Um, and the monks, where the monks lived, were the, were the only banks in colonial um, New Spain. So they made loans and they exercised influence in the community economically. 
And another thing that I found really surprising in Octavio Paz's book was how the the convents were also a, a focus of cultural and society activity in whatever town or village, in this case, the, the convent of San Geronimo was outside, just outside Mexico City. It was very close, but it was a, a magnet for people to come and, and visit. And uh, Sorwana's individual issue was that she was an illegitimate daughter um, of a Bosque uh, navigator and uh, a local mother. She was, um, pr- pronounce it for me, Carrillo? Carrillo. Yeah, so she was born of two European-born parents. And, but she had no dowry because her father had not hung around. And although she was admired and she was admitted in court because of who her, her mother was, she, there was no way that she could have a, an aristocratic future because of her illegitimate birth. However, she was very favored in court because she was so beautiful and because she was unbelievably so smart and she could hold the, the conversation to a much higher level than most of the other males. And it's very strange, particularly in Paz's book, how it starts off with, oh, isn't this little girl really smart? And at the end of her career in the Vicerine Palace, it's like, holy crap, this woman is really smart. It just moves slowly over time um, from this uh, infantilization of her to a, no, 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 you've got, you've got to talk to Sorwana. She were at the time, uh, Juana de la Cruz. You, you've got to talk to this girl. She's amazing to speak to. And here, I think we get a, a little notion of that. I love the way she bursts into um, verse. Sometimes when she wants to say something important that matters, she'll express it spontaneously in verse, like a real poet soul. Well, in, in poetry, I am not a poetry expert at all. All I know is the, the translation that I read of, of her works, but poetry has a meter. And if you have the meter down, and if you work in that verse enough, then you can kind of predict what to say next. And if you're on your feet, you can start to rhyme it, uh, which is why all of Shakespeare's stuff is in iambic pentameter. It's not because Shakespeare was a, uh, a glutton for punishment or he was trying to make it difficult. He was actually trying to make it easy because if it was all in iambic pentameter, then the actors could memorize it better. And there was a lot to memorize. But like you said, she was doing it off her, off her feet. So there you get the contrast between, wow, this is a wonderful cultural center. We get again that. And the Archbishop Sejas, which is only in the last chapter of of Paz's book, he describes him as, as this unbelievable misogynist. Even for the time, Sejas was... Uh, absolutely horrified with women uh, throughout his entire life. And here he's asking them, uh, you know, don't ever come into my presence without putting the veil over your face. And, and at the same time, he was. uh... Was the only person that he spoke with it to. And notice that Ben has him elevated. He's up a few steps higher. After this uh, exchange, he um, he has his secretary. He won't. He refuses to take anything from their hands, and then he has the secretary um, 
swing the incense to purify the air from the stench of woman body. So this is kind of a, Bimber does communicates extremely well and visually the, his contempt for femaleness and, and, and women's bodies as well as, as just women themselves. And at the same time, it seems like Bimberg is is almost toying with us by uh, draping them in in these pointed outfits. It's almost like not just one phallus, but two phalluses in his presence. So it's almost like a visual joke. And and uh, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but it wouldn't surprise me if she's sort of commenting on what a fool he is. Yeah, and she could have. You're right. She could have done a veil here. So maybe she is trying to make a cone head or a KKK or a, something oh. sinister, actually. I think uh, the phallic uh, idea is, is, is compelling, but there's a lot that she's doing there that, you know, and also just absolutely um, making them anonymous and homogenous, with, which is the best he can tolerate of a war. That's certainly one of what something that he he dwells on. So he won't even touch yeah. anything touched by a woman you know, from her hand. And it's amazing. Dungeon hell kind of feel to the darkness and light, the harsh contrast here. This is cinematographically well choreographed. You know, you see the descent, the spiral. There's a kind of a Dante-esque layers of hell feel to the whole thing. Um, this guy's scurrying, kind of hunched back, looking arcane and, you know, now purifying the air. And one thing that I, I really noticed in the first scene for sure, but this scene, which I think is the third scene, not not the one where Sir Juana is writing, but the the darkness bimberg is using the darkness uh, to hide the fact that her sets are so small and to hide the fact that she doesn't have enough money to build this enormous palace and it happens throughout the film where you keep going back to the uh, uh the archbishop's palace and in, in other t- types of sets she's using the lighting and the darkness to hide exactly uh how large the, and she she ups the scale by by losing the light and i was this is a concept that's that's not new in cinema. Uh, Citizen Kane is probably the first film that really shows you how to do this to such a, a really effective degree. I just was not expecting to find this in a film from from Latin America, and it's really got a whole lot of depth to it. This this shot here where they go into these sewing rooms, which, as far as pauses knows, that Sorwana never participated in any type of uh, sewing circle but you see the the depth of field from the front to the back, but you don't really see any details of any walls or any ceilings or anything else. Uh, it's a marvelously uh, constructed set for the purpose. and we'll be back soon because you know 
Sor Juana had a slave. Sor Juana had servants. So uh, Bemberg was worried that we would be unsympathetic to her if she went into those details. So she made it look like she was being attended by her niece. Remember Tia? She kept saying aunt. And, and then she, by including Sor Juana in this scene, it makes it look like, well, she doesn't regard herself as superior to the rest of them privileged she's just you know one of the chicks doing the needlework with with everybody else and even the abbess is doing needlework now let me tell you that wasn't gonna happen either so Bember takes a few liberties with the, the the really strict social order that they have in order either to move the plot along so that they can do a conspiratorial whisper gossip thing here or to win our sympathy for her being a regular chick yeah, and we shouldn't, um, we should also. Didn't want to wait until she was too old to marry. She had no dowry to, to marry someone important. Um, there's no, there's no evidence to think that she was completely secular, that she was completely removed from religious life. I'd find it hard to believe that she could grow up in Spain or you know, grown up with this extremely ecclesiastical, or at least a layman's knowledge of, of your religious life. She seemed to be very informed about religion before she took the vows. She seemed to volunteer and, and dedicate her life to the vows. It's not like she was um, some uh, lowly uh, nun uh, who was just sort of, I can't believe I have to live here with all these women and dress myself this way. She seemed to be very faithful and uh, very much a believer and she she believed very much in God and Jesus and the church, and uh, we shouldn't paint her as the sort of bishop over over a book. She should not be seen as the someone who was completely rebellious to the entire belief structure. Yeah, well, also it was easy to be very religious and very academic at this time, because you remember they referenced. Uh, Kircher, uh, when they, when she says Descartes, Kircher, remember how she's looking at the books? And she, those guys, Kircher was translating Egyptian hieroglyphs and learning Coptic. And he was a Jesuit and very much uh, a man of faith. And so the, the basic way to understand Sor Juana is that she um, was belonged to this intellectual circle of her day that saw the empirical study of stars, of science, of magnetism, of everything as revelatory of divine order. And so that the way you get close to God is through knowledge. It starts with Erasmus in the, in the 1500s, faith through knowledge. And by the 1600s, it's gone huge. So she's, there's nothing inconsistent in this period between faith and empirical inquiry. And I, I fit, I fit her. I see her fitting perfectly into that. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Jesuits. I, I want to get into the, the Vicerine, but before we really study uh, Maria Luisa, I believe was the Vicerine's name. Um, yeah. Let's this hit this Jesuit thing really hard because I, I specifically remember a conversation uh, in class and 
I don't remember how long it went, but I remember it being very shortly heated between some students in the class, uh, which was somebody had said, well, if you look at the church uh, in the 1600s and 1500s, and obviously they were battling the the counter-reformation, and someone had brought up that the church at this point was probably the most corrupt that it had been in history. So why would you not assume that when that church goes to the new world, it's going to take that corruption with it? Uh, That's a perfectly logical thesis. However, I also remember your rebuttal, which was the Jesuits at the time were the intellectual powerhouse of the church. They were the heart of the counter-reformation, and they were the ones who had gone to New Spain in this search of knowledge, and they wanted to know everything about the indigenous population and everything about their language and their culture and their past, and they were the ones who were preserving all of this. So if it were not for the Society of Jesus, we wouldn't know anything about pre- And the Franciscans. The Franciscans did it first, then Jesuits got there and continued that work, intensified. And then ultimately the Jesuits got kicked out um, in the 1700s because they um, were so much champions of the indigenous that these secular Spaniards couldn't exploit them enough and couldn't profit from them enough. And so they get kicked out. And, um, and another film that I think I saw with you in your, your class was The Mission with Jeremy Irons. Remember that? Oh, one? yes. Oh, yes. I saw that, that in the theater. Yeah, that's the example of the, um, of the Jesuits defending the indigenous peoples and getting themselves in trouble with the secular Spaniards right, and Portuguese in that case uh, who want to exploit them. So, yeah, good memory. Well, and that's a contemporary movie. I mean, the mission was, I think, 1990, 1992. It was right in, or maybe the late 80s. Yeah. Got a great opening scene. Well, and this is, obviously, they're in the confessional booth. How many how many shots have you seen of a confessional booth? I've seen a million shots in confessional booths, especially in Irish films. And here you have the slow push in, and we're not going to... Sh- We're not going to put a camera inside a small closet. We're going to surround. I want the audience to see the faces. It's a brilliant move. As if they're almost overtaken. Except that she's luminous. The light is, is full on her, not on him. Even he is threatened to be consumed by, by darkness as he is now here. You see. Right. And that's her confessor, Miranda. Uh, And Miranda was a real person. And Miranda had changed too. He was her champion in the beginning of all of this and just become one of her enemies by, by the time she died. Arc where I think history is going to judge him more harshly than her. Pause says that it was something like 4,000 volumes. A lot of money and a lot of influence to get those books and um, said to be one of the biggest in Latin America at the time. Well, and that also goes to this question of what is a nun doing with all of this stuff, all of these material things, but convents uh, were not cloisters of people who lived in absolute poverty. These, poverty yeah. 
Right. These these were not uh, friars that were here. Uh, convents were often the the depository of a of a family member who could have had a, a perfectly capable life, but because you did not have a dowry, you did not have X, Y, or Z, um, or maybe that person genuinely wanted to go into a moment to serve God. You know, these apartments that these these nuns had were actually quite spacious. I think they said that Sorwanas was was close to a thousand square feet. And it had an audience chamber on the outside uh, that had bars in it so that, that uh, people could come visit the, her and, other, and her sisters in a setting. Did you see how it said Kirscher just then? K-I-R-C-H-E-R? Yes. I just wanted to say that these were not, uh, they weren't living in cells. This was, the convent was not a dungeon. Um, this was uh, a place where many people could visit and interact with their family member or a famous personage like Sorwana and have that, that open interaction. This was not a totalitarian environment, at least not to start with. And this was not uh, the only convent. This, the convents in Europe were this way, you know. And there were different orders. For example, you could be among the Descalza, the Barefoot Sisters, Carmelite Sisters, and you could take a vow of poverty and it would be much different much more austere, um, but this was not the case for the uh, Heronimo con- convent. Um, and often just excess daughters would go in there because that way they would, the families would secure influence in the loans, just getting somebody to, getting favor from that convent for when they ask for a loan. It was also a way to protect money because if, if you didn't want somebody to get a certain amount of money, you could give it to a family member who was, in a convent and no one could ever touch it because it was on church property. Exactly. And uh, they wouldn't have to divide it up because remember um, when you died, you were required to divide your estate up among all your children. But if you had one who didn't have children, then you could protect a certain amount of money. So look, this is another theme that matters a lot to me in this film, which is women's bodies and, you know, just the corporal, the, 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 the physical and what she's doing is liberating this woman from everything that's been constraining her at a symbolic level Bimberg is showing that the, the relationship with Juana is, is liberating the Marquise, the Marquesa opening it up for her and letting her breathe so of course it gets read as as lesbian stuff and gets read as um, as um, intimacy, but I think that's um, that's probably not even been there. That's uh, the rest of us who who need that affirmation. Well, that's what it says on the on the front or the back of the DVD. Yeah, it says lesbian. Yeah. But if you know the huger story in this period, and if you know the longer story all the way back 300 years, you see that this erotic uh, poetry, this body grounded uh, appeal to the divine is very old in Christianity. And especially among female mystics and saints. So she's not doing anything that Santa Teresa didn't do uh, 300 years, no, 100 years before, and also Hildegard von Bingen did in the 1200s this very eroticized language of love and sexuality and poetry. It is 
is divinity. So we modern 20th century and 21st century people like to see affirmation of, of, uh, of lesbian or female eroticism in this. But I think that would probably be us, us imposing ourselves on Sohana in my reading. Our modern day interpretation of sexuality. Yeah, and just our needs are calling from her something that doesn't that that doesn't spring naturally to her. It's, it's, in other words, it's absolutely possible in her training and in her context and in the context of three or four hundred years of female mystics and saints and poets and artists, nuns, to to speak in this language of eroticism and to be very physical with other women's bodies, even to the, you know, at every stage, bringing birth, birth bringing, um, hugging, holding hands, uh, caressing, all the way to performing, you know, to preparing the body for burial. So women's physicality and touching and kissing and holding is capable of being non-sexual in this period from 12, certainly 1200 to almost the enlightenment to, to late 1700s or mid, mid 1700s. And the lesbianism is a, is a male reading. Is it not? Is that the male gaze not creating that there's nothing in Paz's book. I mean, he specifically addressed it and said, there's, there's no proof that Sorwana had, and the Viserine had any type of contact that was not proper. But this, this atmosphere of romanticism is, in modern day, is misread. What are these nuns writing about and reading about, and how are they talking? It was very odd, particularly since between then and now, we had this Victorian era, which really pushed Puritanism really into our, our soul in Western society, right? So we lost this aspect that eroticism and romanticism was so important to us. And just so natural. And in fact, it was keeping them the world going. People had to be body to keep sexuality going through pest and famine. And people were just much more body too in popular culture, as well as this erotic poetry and convent elite cultures. This is all kind of interesting too here. She's um, basically holding court. She's um, exalted as a as a, um, a luminary, and, she, and she's got a whole. It's almost like she's a queen, and these are her courtiers. Uh, and this was not only happened to Sorquana, but this happened to lots and lots of nuns. They sang, they recited poetry, they made little delicacies and finger foods it's before the era of television and theater and. I mean, theater would come through once in a while, but not very often. So this was entertainment, especially for men. So sort of almost like the um, geisha or something in um, Japanese culture, which we also have sexualized. But the original geishas were intellectual and artists and hostesses and very untouchable and elite originally. 
these repetitive shots of the men. Uh, Miranda is not there, but I think Segeza, yeah. who's one of the, uh, again, a, a, a very real person that, that knew Sarwana and, and, and respected her immeasurably. Uh, it just recalls like a Vermeer painting with the way that their, their white collars are and so forth. Nice. That's a good eye there. Or Rembrandt or someone like that. I find it hard to believe that Bimberg didn't do that on on purpose. She's deliberately constructing these these images of of contemporary painters. Rembrandt was not too long after this. In terms of time of Sorwana's life. Notice this gift. First of all, in the opening scene, it's it's very intensely um, bars. So the Mexican bird and the bars, so it's, it's speaking of her as kind of a caged exotic bird is, is, the, is sort of for me the way I read it. And then she puts it on and she says, Moctezuma falls prostrate at the feet of the conqueror. Well, that that's when she becomes both Montezuma and the conqueror in some ways, you know, when she, when she dons this headdress, because of course Moctezuma also had um, plumed headdresses, which is now, by the way, in Vienna. You know that, right? No. His uh, his headdress is still in Vienna, Austria, right now. In a tell me, it's in a museum. Yes, it's in the Schönberg. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. It was the Habsburg Palace. Oh, I think that's where the um, the woman in gold was for. 80 years. I think it's in the same institution. Yeah, those guys have for a collection for sure. Yeah, they did for sure. Democratic uh, process, but again, he is supervising and on high. And look how it's serpentine. Bimberg, you know, she could have done that line in so many different ways, but she actually made it look serpentine. Uh, some kind of sinister thing is happening. She's, she's delivering the sinisterness of it, of this boat. And then you get the same sinister thing with the new abbess exalted on the shoulders of the other ones. So, so it's funny how she plays with serpentine imagery as well. Serp, serpents come up more than once in this film. Well, isn't there a serpent on the Mexican flag? Oh, yeah. yeah there is. That's a good point, too. But I think that what's here happening here is that she's playing with the Christian notion of serpents as evil. Mm. Uh, because at one point when they're talking about women, they say, uh, every time I, they're, they're quoting somebody else and they say, every time a, a woman speaks, I, I, I fancy I hear a serpent hissing. So, so Ben works a little, kind of works that imagery of serpents a lot which I kind of fault her for because she sort of seems to be accepting the, the Christian notion of serpents as evil, which is a shame. Next up, we're going to see an apple on her desk, a really big one. That's a joke. And notice she has almost what looks like a wedding ring on her left ring finger there. Well, and she had a bracelet that was over her cuff on her left hand when she was in the audience she has a lot of material things around it astrolabes and things of, of that nature which again were not uh, out of the ordinary for for the nuns to have material possessions 
Yeah. It's also, uh, Paz also says that it would not have been uncommon for the Viserine and Sorwana to meet in these intimate circumstances. Right. And you see here the, the protection is given of you're not going to mess with this specific person. And Sorwana had to be very sensitive to her protectors for obvious reasons, but the previous Viserine, if I remember correctly, um, that gave her protection, she lived in her palace uh, before she was a nun. That Viserine um, had died before she even made it to Veracruz uh, to make the crossing back to Spain. I think she died in childbirth and was a very close friend of, of Sorwana's while she lived in the palace. And so to, to make another friend of another Viserine and that, and to see that Viserine again, give birth to a boy and the risk that that posed um, yeah. to, to women in their lives. Right. Uh, that, that had to be. And say, is she all right? Because clearly she had already, you know, lived through. And, and you're making a good point too. in that if she's really thick with both vice queens, vice, um, I don't know, a, then why are we sexualizing the second one? Right. right. We didn't sexualize the first one. What's the impulse to sexualize the second one? So, so I think that gets back to also why we don't need to read this as a lesbian love. Yeah. Nobody said anything when she lived in a palace as a single young girl with a, with another Viserine and had free access to, to her and her ladies in waiting. There's nothing that suggests anything improper during that time period. And, and that Viserine, loved her so much that she put her up there as um for that big exam you know the examination the academic examination so here's where she runs out and says she okay when when they hear about the baby being born right everyone is celebrating Mm -hmm. and the bell's tall and she's always she's always out of sync with them. They're all joyous and she's panicking. Or they're all joyous and emoting and she's dropping to her knees and praying. So so Bimberg is keen to show how how she lives really apart and in a different world from all these other nuns. Interesting. And of course I keep trying to find the pool, the pool of water in every shot. And I keep, I was raised Catholic. So of course there was anytime you saw water in anything you're, yeah. you're trying to read into, okay, why is water in this situation? And in this, and in many cases in this film, it's probably just water. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, no, cause that tree had significance. You remember the tree where she falls asleep in the middle of, you know, she falls asleep at night at the base of a tree. And that tree is very stark. That's the tree of knowledge, I think, is what we're supposed to be reading that to be. So I, I, I work with your water thing. Well, a tree needs life. So I don't know how they did this. This is very clearly, you see the shadow of the tree yeah. on the floor. And I guess it's supposed to be moonlight. Yeah. It's coming down. And this might be suggestive to some people why is the viserine in the convent at night yeah there is that but also see how luminous she is with her 
her bracelet and her eyes and the vice friend. And there's also a, a modern day conception of the Middle Ages in general, and probably Latin America during the Middle Ages even more so, just being this um, very dark period. Now, I say Middle Ages, this was the 1690s. This was not the Middle Ages. Early modern period, but I don't Right. Think yeah. And this is the day before the Industrial Revolution. It, it feels medieval, though, this whole, this whole set of, this whole dynamic. Right. And all these men lined up, and this looks like an Inquisition. And I give severe props to whoever did her hair for this scene. Yeah, that's intense. The Shirley Temple. I've all on it. Um, but but here Ben Bagger is making, I think, a really robust statement about men and dominating, interrogating, controlling, and yet she can't be dominated, controlled, or trumped in this uh, by them. So that's, a, so that's a kind of a nice one. Now notice the one on the end is a woman. That's probably the vice friend. And yet she's dressed a little bit like a man too. So I think Ben Berg is saying, look, it's not just, it's not just Sor Juana who's challenging these things. It's these vice queens too. It's, it's even her mother. Her mother had six kids. Juana's mother had six kids out of wedlock. You know, that was back in the day when you could get yourself condemned uh, for refusing to marry. So, especially elite women, obviously you could get away with it better um, as a peasant woman. You could get away with uh, out of wedlock, child rearing, and marrying. Well, it's such a scary time. For, yeah and for women it's a scary time to to get pregnant to to give birth uh, to not know if you're going to live past your first child or your second child russian roulette is what it is yeah hemorrhage death right there well and unfortunately we live in a state that is going back to new spain in terms of their policies towards women unfortunately rolling body seems to be again the rage oh sevillanismo they're specifically discussing heresy and once again we have to reiterate uh, Sir Juana was not deemed a heretic she said nothing that was heretical the inquisition was never even bothered uh, by her and the inquisition was in new spain it sat in mexico city so if if she had breathed a word of of anything like that they would have been on her instantaneously um, i think that segeza uh, was a part-time member of the inquisition if i remember correctly in paz's book and these people were well known and none of that ever came up. It was a it was a theological uh, difference of opinion. Yeah. Well, and then this thing is kind of weird too because this just shows the classic thing where men are trying to control and take 
you know, take advantage. And yet she dodges out and flips it. She ends up taking the lead and then turning, you know, turning away. Without objectifying herself. Mm-hmm. Or the moment. This is something that I want to do because I want to remember this because it won't happen again. And because I'm exploring everything, I'm a, I'm a, a student of, of all things. And this is the thing that I'm happy to study, that you're not going to pounce on me and take anything that I don't want to give. I was really amazed in, in reading about her. It reminded me of the story that you could probably tell and change the character to Sorwana, which this guy was walking through on a farm and ran into another man who was standing by the fence and he, he greets the man and they start talking about the, the farm. And then this traveler finds out this guy knows everything about agriculture. That's pretty impressive. And so the, the farmer says, where are you headed off to? And he's, oh, I'm going to this church in this town the traveler says, and then the farmer starts talking about all this theology and oh my God, this for a farmer, this guy's really well known about theology. And then the traveler says, after that, I'm I'm going on to New York. And then, of course, the farmer starts talking about, oh, the architecture in New York is amazing. And so the traveler goes on and he goes to uh, the church and starts talking to the church people in nearest town and says, I met this farmer on the way up. And that guy seemed to know everything about everything. I, I was really amazed at him. And so, of course, everyone in the, in the church said, oh, well, that was Thomas Jefferson. And I seem to get the same sense of, of Sorwana. She she knew a lot about astronomy. She knew a lot about the sciences. Like you were saying, she was reading Carriker. Um, she seemed to have a very well-rounded, she was a Renaissance woman. Music. Uh, yeah, she, she was on the quest to know everything. And that was what many of her contemporaries were on the quest to know. They explicitly stated it. And it seemed possible at the time. Everything was connected. This is for our day of, well, my specialization is this, so I don't have to know anything about anything else. And, um, and the idea was to detect in the, with empirical inquiry, the pattern established by the divine. And that, um, and that covered them. There was no heresy there because the empirical led to and reaffirmed and, and inspired greater devotion to the God. Well, if you were uncovering God's truth, how could it be wrong? Yeah, exactly. No matter what your methods and your debates and your erotic poetry. And your... So look, these, these women are furtively copying and ratting around. So I kind of, I kind of hate that Bemberg needed to resort to this, this treason of women by women. You know, the whole thing could have happened without any women having betrayed her. And I rather think it did, but Bemberg, her job is to make the film sell, you know, to make people interested. So she has to create conflict. And so if she has intrigue in the conflict, in the convent, if she sets a bad, mean, ugly abbess against the sweet, lovely, 
nice Abbess. If she has some sneaky people, nuns, mistreating the nice nuns. In other words, she, she kind of makes conflict happen, which is historically grounded. And we have to let her get away with it because she's trying to make a film. But I do find it sad that we resort to these things. In other words, when drama has to be driven by evil women, it's like you're sort of sabotaging your own purpose in making the film in the first place. Uh, I see that. That's a good point. Uh, I cannot imagine what it was like to live in a convent with 100 or 150 other women. I would imagine that the, uh, for lack of a better word, the cattiness when you're doing the same thing every day, day in, day out for decades, there, there must have been very, just like in a monastery, very disappointing intrigue based on personalities and cliques and things like that. Again, like you're back in middle school. We're hissing part. Well, the thing is that actually, I think it's also possible that it could have been fine. Like you could have had normal, nobody ever talks about the men in the, in the um, Abbey being um, catty or, or petty and squabbling. Although of course there would be personality conflicts and tensions. But we, we just use different language for it, which is very telling about how we think about women. And the other thing is that even though they may have had plenty, you know, they would have had plenty of conflict, it would have been already their practice to get over it because that God doesn't like it. And they, and they have mechanisms to resolve it. So just like I can live with all my neighbors and never have a catty moment, even though we have conflicts about who dog barking or what, they have mechanisms. I don't. I, I think that's all invented by us. This, this need to see it as a, a hotbed of intrigue and cattiness and bitchiness. See, this is this is. Uh, I think a reference. She goes on and on and on, frame after frame after frame, with this tree. This thing takes a long time, and I think Bimbeck is really making the point. Okay, people, this is the tree of knowledge, but it's sterile and dead, and. Bemberg wanted to taste that fruit. That's her big sin for the church. She wanted to taste of, you know, of the tree of knowledge. And instead, she just collapses at its feet, inert, restless, and vanquished. And the next morning, we wake up to the scene of of them um, um, sealing off her books. You go straight from this tree to that scene. She's barefoot. She's got no protection, no blanket, no pillow, no, no, no servants. And there it is. Yeah, the wax seal. So, so Bemberg is really saying, look, you, she just couldn't do it. She couldn't get away with it. And it's a real turning point. From now on, it just gets worse and worse. Well, and she, she gave some of her 
books away. She donated them to certain people or gave them to certain people. And I think that was the great majority of her collection because they asked her to, or she was required to do so. But then I also see that uh, the day after she was buried, uh, the vicery, I'm sorry, not the vicery, the archbishop sent a team to go take everything out of her room, including all of her books. They confiscated all of her property. And there was actually a lawsuit, uh, not by Sorwana's uh, family, but by another family of a, a nun that he had done that to, confiscated everything. And that lawsuit went on for, for years. I didn't know that. That's yeah. Awesome. Paz writes about it in, in his book. And it, it right. was finally settled with uh, his estate because, like I said, he died a few years uh, afterwards. See, now this right here is weird because here again, Bember is dramatizing something to try and make it. Because remember how she said her books were her children and her astrolabe and her lute and all that? So this is her miscarrying. This is her losing her baby when the books are taken away from her. And so Bember is, is resorting to this, this female maternal imagery and kind of foisting it unnaturally upon Sulquana. It's kind of ironic that she's forcing her to be maternal, which she refused to be and didn't want to be. She's forcing her to experience loss in this you know, um, miscarrying female kind of way. And so I know she has to make the film work, but I'm disappointed again in that. And here, Miranda almost, he's starting to turn himself. He's almost like a salesman when he's he's at her he was her ally until i think this moment where he says effectively help me help you let me help you and it's all a ruse it's i wouldn't so much call it a conspiracy or a plan but even this statement the devil is subtle right he disguises himself to resemble god search for knowledge is that it's the devil's work a disguise for the devil and so you're right. That's a big moment of betrayal on his part. So you shouldn't search for knowledge because if a woman knows too much, it's the devil's work. Yeah, the devil gets it. That really hasn't changed in 400 years, has it? No, unfortunately. Well, I mean, at least, I mean, you remember Timothy 2 in the Bible. There is Second um, Timothy. It says, I suffer not a woman to teach me or to speak to me or to be an authority. And that has been used against women being teachers and being, no, you know, seeking knowledge for all these centuries. But it is true now we, there's more girls in college than there are boys and they're, you know, the faculty, at least in certain disciplines, are half and half or more. So we have gotten somewhere, but only in certain countries. Certainly, you know, countries in Africa where kids, girls in school, there's not 
countries elsewhere where girls in school are being heavily attacked on religious grounds, Afghanistan. Afghanistan. So we have to be constantly vigilant and supportive of our, of our females and of everyone, girls and boys. Everybody's being denied a chance to learn. It's just too dangerous and too hard to control them. And so we make college cost a fortune. We make public schools really underfunded and not important to any of us. When is an adult ever, you know, just an adult professional ever helping out in school? It used to be all the time. And so I feel like education is under attack for all of us, not just for girls. Well, unfortunately, it's my belief that in doing that and in, in damaging knowledge of women, whether it be in the 1500s, or 1600s, or even today, you're damaging the male psyche too. Because you're telling males it's okay to think that way. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to treat women that way. Well, it's, that's, not, that's not acceptable for men to think that way. And if you're, if you're treating women that way and you're saying it's okay, it's only going to go on. And it's, and it's going to hurt you too, as you say. The other thing is that I, every time I see misogyny rear its head historically, it's always a ruse by somebody else to control men. To say, look, you don't have to earn good wages. You don't have to compete with me politically. You don't have to join my country club because you are king in your own house. That's where your power is. You exercise your power over your women and children, and then you're your man. And so, for example, slaveholders told white men that they could control their white women and could be superior to black men and women because they didn't want them to chat. They wanted to distract them with that power, with that pseudo power, and not actually compete with them for real power. Like, look, you got power, go ahead and exercise your power. And meanwhile, I'll exercise all, all the power, the economic, the political, as slaveholders, male, white slaveholders. So every time men get thrown those bones of, yeah, you're, you're better than your women, it's really a veil, a mask to keep them from noticing that actually they don't have any power. They're really poor. They're really um, exploited. And they're really different. So, so misogyny actually works to, to hold up a social system where everybody loses male and female, as you said. Well, and isn't that in the situation that Sorwana is in? So she criticizes this essay or, or the works of this Portuguese Jesuit. Yeah. Her, her essay is exposed uh, without her consent. Or, or knowledge it's published the archbishop gets pissed off because he is a fan of this portuguese jesuit and he clamps down on her because he's he is trying to do what he is trying to control what people think and by people we mean the men in the church and who work for him or who work in New, in spain that he might go back to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. he's trying to control the way people worship and the way people think. And he's using her as a tool to do that. Can't afford to have her uh, sabotaging that larger exercise of power. No, you're exactly right. Well, if he can't control this nun, 
that's half his age in new Spain. What can he control? He's he, he has to control her or he is irrelevant in his mind. Now notice this locket. This is a, an enigmatic piece because I think we're supposed to think that it, that it's a portrait of the um, Viceran of Maria Luisa, but actually I don't think so. There's no moment when she gives her that. I think it's, it's just some unnamed love, some unnamed desire that she holds close to her heart. And here I think Bember is very brilliant because it, when she breaks that off her neck and gives it to him at the end after, during the plague scene, that's when she's surrendering her quest for knowledge, her secret desire. You see that it was embedded among the books. It wasn't under her pillow, it wasn't on the floor, it wasn't under a brick. That locket symbolizes for me the great treasure that is in those books and that is her secret desire, which is knowledge. So she puts it on, she puts it against her heart and she doesn't take it off until he demands, she says, mandamelo vos, you order me to give up, renounce all those things. And then she reaches in, he yanks it out and gives it to him. And Bember lets us think that that's her giving up her, her lesbian love for the vice queen. But actually, it's something much more powerful and older, and that is her love, her, her hope for knowledge, quest. Okay. So that, that's a very enigmatic piece that Bemberg plays with enormously effectively. And here's a, another contrived scene that probably historically was, was unnecessary of we're going to fool the this does not look like the inquisition to me, but it's a, it's a publishing authorization of some sort where Miranda is, is this can be published. This cannot be published this chapter and this can, so they're slipping this under the, the radar, her, her essay criticizing this Portuguese Jesuit, uh, yeah. Vejo or Veja, if I remember correctly. That wasn't actually the case. Um, yeah. It was an agreement between Sorwana and and the Bishop of Puebla the, yeah. to to write this. The Bishop of Puebla uh, published it because he had the power to publish it because he was someone and he wrote the intro to it. It, yeah. it was him behind this entire scenario from from start to finish. It was his idea. He approached her. She wrote it. He edited it. He wrote the introduction to it. And the only thing uh, and and then he authorized it to be published. And he carried it to New Spain, or, I mean, uh, back to Old Spain to, to have it published there. So it's entirely his doing. And, it was, and he was the one who wrote the Sor Filotea framing of it. Also uh, artful of her part. So they were having a joyous scene. And then the ball goes, gets thrown to a third party. And then you introduce the tragic moment. Like, how do you introduce the tragic moment that, that the protection is gone? is leaving she does a beautiful job right there and their term is up yeah and she tries to give the larger life lesson beyond reading and writing cooking and dancing and going and then that's very quickly taken away 
something more important. Yeah. Perception and curiosity it is God given, and it's the work of God to follow it, and that's her case, male or female. But um, yeah, that's the whole case. So Bember works to get that in there, but most of the time she has to resort to these pseudo lesbian things or the pseudo women conflicts or the pseudo women private sufferings. You know, a lot of times she sort of sells out, but in this moment she keeps pure. And she actually says intelligence has no sex in this very scene. I, I have to ask, because I I wouldn't presume to know, how was this taken in Argentina? This this film is famous throughout Latin America, at least in the 90s. I mean, how how did the audience view this film as a gender equalizing medium? I would say fabulously well because... Have a dream of a huge, luscious, creamy root beer float? Well, if you haven't tried one with Mug Root Beer, start drooling now. Mug, old-fashioned root beer in the new Twist Top bottle. It was fabulously well received because you have to remember that this is the period when the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo are marching against the dictatorship in the 80s and bringing it down. So female power and women... Um, investigating and researching and asking questions and pushing is a hugely popular thing freeing perceived as freeing argentina from the death grip of these of the church too the church was complicit with the dictatorship you remember the official story so that he that that priest went with her husband to kidnap the baby so this this whole thing has enormous resonance in, in argentina of this time period and Bember, my i don't know for sure but my hunch is that she too is rebelling against the dictatorship and the conservativeness that kept her marginalized and kept her having six kids and now finally the dictatorship's over she's 60 the kids are grown and, and she just busts loose with the rest of argentina you know at that time in 85 or so all the men let their hair grow in Argentina. Nobody had short hair because that's what the, that's what the soldiers had had. So if you see the soccer players in Argentina, if you see anybody in Argentina, everybody had long hair signaling, look, we are not with church. We're not with government. We're not with the military. We are breaking free. And, and Bember is working in that tremendously exhilarating way to liberate. We're not conservatives. Exactly. We are pissed. We are, you know, women power. And it was women who brought down that, that dictatorship. So, no, this is, Member gets this golden moment. And, and way, you see how it says primer, primer. Yeah, it's uh, the first dream. It's the first Primero sueño. Primero sueño, not primer sueño. You notice how it's primero sueño. That translates, everybody's gotten it wrong. That translates as first I dream. That does not translate as first dream. First I dream. Primero, yo sueño. I dream. Primero sueño. If it had been first dream, it would have been primer sueño. Oh, it's the O. It's the O that signals to us that 
that she stated first, I dream. The first I dream of God and the great cosmic order, and then I research. So that, that whole primer sueño, primer, primer, um, primero sueño is her, it's a, it's a, as she says in this film, it is my exploration of the great act of knowing, the great adventure of knowing. Primero sueño, first I dream, and then I investigate, I research. So she's grounding herself in the cosmic order in the divine, in the thing that is irrational, which is dreams and music and all of that. So I hate it, hate it, hate it when I see it, including in this book by 20, 2018, Autos Sacramentales of Juana Inez de la Cruz, where they translated his first dream. No, it's not first dream. It's first I dream. Well, that's the same in Paz's book, too. He says first dream, right? Yes. Yeah, because, but he's not saying it. It's Margaret, what's her name, who translated it, who's got it wrong. Oh, right. No, you're right. Yeah. Because I, I read it in Spanish a million years ago. And of course, he's saying, primero sueño. And then she translates it in 92 or sometime. He writes it in the 80s. Yeah, Margaret Sayers Payton. Yeah. So, audience, a huge favor if you make that clear. That first I dream, I accept the irrational realm, the realm beyond reason. And then I begin my rational inquiry, my the great adventure of reason, knowledge, and research. Los Angeles weather. Low overcast tonight, low around 58, mostly sunny tomorrow with a high near 68. No smog beaches now, 62, Valley 66, downtown 65, Orange County 66. All right. So here the plot is laid. And this is a, we mentioned this before, that this is a, a theological squabble over someone else's writings. And the, the archbishop has enough enemies inside and outside the church that there are people willing to help the Bishop of Puebla in this grand enterprise. So what about Sorwana in this quote-unquote jail cell? Is she ever becoming a captive? That's a, that's a nice uh, parallel, these bars as prison bars, which is hugely what she's after also. And that quote that she just gave about what God, the greatest gift God gives us is not the greatest favor God grants us is not granting us our favors. That quote there. If you remember, Octavio Paz treats, no, no. Is it Octavio Paz? No, it's, uh, it might be Octavio Paz. He, he treats, yes, it was Octavio Paz. He treats that as her greatest, closest scratch with heresy. That she there is, well, I could get into a huge theological thing with you on that. But, but Ben Berg, 
it's worth noting that Bember knew her work well enough to include that particular quote. Because Octavio Paz says that Sor Juana basically said, look, I don't need God to reciprocate my love. And only the divine can be indifferent to reciprocity. So when she's in, indifferent to reciprocity, she's actually shading into exalting herself as divine. Oh. So it's kind of, kind of spectacular that Bimber included that one quote of the whole uh, response, uh, you know, um, attack on on that Portuguese theologian. Yeah, Vejo. And the Bishop of Puebla, for the record, was Manuel Ferdinand Fernandez de Santa Cruz. Oh, yeah, I didn't even know. Yeah. Look look how she poises the camera on that dangerous document. Whoops, what happened? We lost something. Did we lose the film? I'm, I'm seeing an ocean scene. Oh, no, it's uh, it's meant to be a... a I'm sure a desert in Oaxaca or outside Mexico City. She's oh, seen. Oh, is that what that is? Oh, wow! I like, forgot all about this thing. Because I believe her mother passed away, and now she's. Right. So this is the glimpse of the other Mexico here. So she, here she is, mothering her mother, becoming something like a mother. This is the only time we see her in that maternal role. And this is the conversation, if I remember correctly, you know, I, I couldn't subject myself to a man. Yeah. Children clinging to my skirts every time I looked for a rhyme. She couldn't work. She couldn't focus. She couldn't be that intellectual power. Yeah. If she had chosen that life. And her mother slaps her. Yeah. And today that's even, we live in a different era where maybe you would not have seen that even as a choice. You wouldn't have a choice, but to be that maternal person. Yeah. But back then when, particularly in New Spain where everyone's Catholic and even in Europe, everyone was religious. That was seen as something that you could do. This flashback is nice. uh, Her biography is very specific about this time when she was young, when she cut her hair because her hair was in the way of her focusing on reading yeah. And she dressed like a boy so she could try to go to school. Right. Dressed as a nun, yeah. Yeah, just uh, Bimber underscoring the paucity of options. Yeah. And Pa's right. She said, using Jesuitical ideas and procedures, Sorwana attacked a Jesuit, one of the most illustrious among them. Her attack was not directed, like Pascal's, against a doctrine, but rather against a person and a group. In its published form, the Carta was preceded by another letter, a sort of prologue addressed to Sorwana and signed by 
Sor Philotea. Is that correct? Yeah. De La Cruz, a nun in the convent of Puebla who declared herself a student of the poet. Well, we know that that's, that's false. It was the Bishop of Puebla who wrote that. Doubly hiding behind the skirts of a woman. Right. Yeah, I am not the evil, but the woman is. Behind first Juana's skirts and then behind this fictitious ego there. Well, and the Jesuit himself had this amazing story and he lived until he was 85 and had been to Brazil and back and to Brazil again and, and was, um, had, had written all these books on theology. And I was just trying to find it. It was only a paragraph, but it was just the most amazing story. It reminded me of Ignatius of Loyola and everything that he had gone through, walked from Paris to Rome on pilgrimage on foot. You know, it's this yeah. um, crazy story. Yeah. There's a lot of those stories. Kierkegaard's another. Now we get a, a very brief moment that Bemberg includes class. That was a very brief nod to class issues and Juana being sympathetic to class issues. Well, and if I remember correctly, New Spain had uh, encomienda, as that was it was called, yeah. the rigid class structure where you had you know, the, the Spaniards and then you had the peninsulares the people who are from Iberia. And then you had the Criollos who were, uh, who were Spanish, but they were born in new Spain. And -hmm. then below that you had uh, mestizos who were uh, mixed race between uh, the Indians and, or the indigenous and the Spaniards. And then mulattoes who are mixed race between the the Spanish and the uh, either mestizos or, or Africans who were, brought to New Spain. And then below that, you had the Africans. I think very roughly that's... Yeah, that's, that's no, that's that very specifically and, and uh, rigidly, yeah. The encomienda was a land-grant system early in the days of the colonial period, but this, um, but this class structure you described endured the entire 300 years. Right. Right, and it was a it was a legal class system, uh, like India had for hundreds yes, of years. Yes, system, yeah. Versus the unofficial economic system that we have in the states, where we're we're going to pretend we don't have a, a well, we don't have a legal system that says this, but in reality, we're we're keeping everyone kind of in the same rigid rigid hierarchy based on how much you make. True. Very good. And race. And race, yes. You know, overlap so much. Absolutely. So here's an, another example of this this wonderful lighting work that Bimberg and her cinematographer use in order to create space where that was probably just the corner of the set. Yeah, and it looked like a whole hallway. And here, of course, she's putting it together that. I have been betrayed. Theology is not for women. And here's the the word worst. It's the first time in the film that it's actually uttered. Here is the worst. 
Yeah. And Sorwana had apparently used the phrase, I, the worst of all, several times throughout her life in her journals and in her poetry and in her essays. I hadn't known that. Never knew that. And I think that it started out, if I, if I recollect correctly, it started out as a um, reverential saying, what am I to the power and the glory of God? I am the worst of all. And then it just slowly filtered into different connotations and different uses as, as the situation changed. Wow. That's actually poetic and elegant. I'm glad you, you brought that up. Well, I think that might be why Bimberg used that specific phrase. But of course it's looking back on it 400 years later. It's, None of it is true. It's, it's, like, it's like a sick joke. She might have been the best of all. Yeah. She was definitely better than all the men that surrounded her determined her destiny. That's for sure. Except Zuenzo's solidarity. Right, right. He said, I am the bishop. Don't shout at me. Right. And here, of course, is the first mention of the curia and my relationship with the curia. And now we're getting at the heart of the matter, which is none of this is really about theology. None of this is really about what we believe and how we pray. This is really politics. Politics. Exactly. To quote, um, Father Guido Sarducci, the comedian, Yeah. right? Politics, politics, politics. You need five miracles to be a saint, and three of them are car trips. <laughs> Man, see, they translated it first dream there, too. And there's a skull on this table. Oh, that was classic. You know, the San Jeronimo, St. Saint Jerome. I think it was one of the desert fathers always had a skull on the table, it was part of the anatomical, it was two things. It was part of the anatomical research, but also it was a reminder that everything is fleeting and our destiny is that. So it's an humbling thing. Don't think you're so cool because you're going to end up like that. But that was a classic Desert Fathers, great saints of the church kind of move. And here she is claiming it for herself, which is significant. Did you notice that it went off like gunpowder, the desire to learn in her? And the thing that she was pinning there was her answer to Sor Philothea, which is her most autobiographical work, if you've ever read that. It's probably in the compendium that you have. Yeah, it's, on the, it's at the end of the uh, selected works, translated by Edith Grossman. Yeah. It sure is. Here's the, the confrontation, and the bars are ever-present now. Well, what's, in, what's huge now is her insisting on thrusting her body into his space, her humanity, her flesh. So this is... Um... Well, and Bimberg has moved for the first time in the film. Bimberg has moved the camera 180 degrees 
into her cell and is now we are looking the other way. Uh, previously, if we were if we were seeing her in her cell, we were still it was almost like the lens was was right through the the grate. But that was the first time we had seen uh, the people on the other side behind behind bars. It's almost like uh, through their actions and in, in accusing her and putting her in this situation, the men are really caging themselves, uh, at least intellectually. I love that. That's elegant. I hadn't seen that, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, now they're the ones behind bars. Yeah, right. very, very astute of you. Will you never stop scribbling? Just stop yeah. writing. As if he thinks, if I can just stop her from writing, I can stop her from thinking. And being. Being. Be quiet, woman. <laughs> you know, I mean, at the end of the day, be quiet, woman. is the most insulting thing. I remember the, this is completely a little bit off topic, but the, the lead singer for Four Non Blondes, a real popular band back in the 90s, when, when they signed their record deal. And uh, she was, does not look like your, you know, she doesn't look like Gwen Stefani or, or Tori Amos, you know. And so the record company asked her, can you be, be that girl, you know, that girl who just shows up and does her job and goes home? And she said, no, actually, no, I can't be that girl. And I won't be that girl. I won't be anything that you expect me to be, period. Yeah. And as a oh, result, okay. they didn't get another contract. Wow, depressing. But she lives her life the way she wants to live it. Right. If I weren't a woman, my theological impertinence would not matter. And time and again, no matter what book you read, that keeps coming up. These discussions had been going on for hundreds of years. This was nothing new. These theological debates were nothing new. The only thing different, they were having these debates in New Spain. The only thing different was that this was a woman who was bringing up these debates. My favorite line from a bastard. Yes. The only thing that could be worse from hearing this from a woman is hearing it from a bastard woman. And here, she's actually touching him. She's defiling him with her womanhood. Yeah. And she, he loses his crutch. She almost makes him fall. You're the one who has the devil in your heart. And here's his response. I see. Find yourself another confessor. Right. Miranda finally gives up on her. And I'd like to think that there is also, again, something political, like maybe Miranda did that because he thought, well, I've got to support my my boss, my my bishop or my archbishop. But at the end, I think that Miranda really does. He really does see things the way the archbishop sees it. And he he goes through this change, this transformation, whereas Segueza never does that. Segueza always has Sir Juan's side. He's just completely powerless to do anything about it. And all that folds and folds of fabric, all that despondency. Well, obviously, there is something in the in the dress of the convent of you know to hide the body, to hide yeah. the female forms. 
Um, Christianity is not the only religion to have a dress code for, for women or at all. There's almost no difference between her and them. Her dead, being dead and them being dead. Yeah. It's almost the same energy level. We saw kind of catatonic. Yeah, yeah. Nobody was moving at all. Not just the, the deceased person, but none of the sisters were. Like, yeah. Like a foreshadowing. Again, we get bars. Mm-hmm. Light and dark. Some kind of gatekeeper figure. Well, right. And so if you can't build a gate and you can't afford to show the front of the gate, what do you do? Show the reflection of a gate against the ground. Yeah. It's it's a brilliant device. And I, I swear that all these sets she's using are probably sets from uh, you know, possibly some TV soap opera that was filming at the same yeah. time, and she probably reused them. Recycled. Right. Not only would that not be uncommon, but it's it's actually pretty ingenious. So here's something else that at least Pa spent a lot of time on. It was really completely out of Sorwana's control was this peasant uprising and indigenous uprising that had happened in Mexico city because there were rains that just went on for over a year. And then the harvest was, was hurt the following year and people started starving and there was this enormous famine and the famine caused this. It wasn't even armed uprising, but it was, it was thousands of people who, who flooded Mexico city with protests and the, the visory and his palace was exposed and they were subject to assault by this mob. And even though the, the viceroy and his wife and his family were all in the end, it was safe. They didn't, they didn't know they would turn out safe and it, it greatly weakened his power to enforce the, his will via of the military on the population in Mexico city, if not all of, all of new Spain. So this, this gave the archbishop more power to do whatever he wanted in the church because he did not have a secular authority there to challenge him. So even though the vicery and the vicerine were trying to protect Sorwana, they, they lost the ability to actually do that. It just became that weakened. Right. And, and they mentioned it briefly, but you know, again, we're in a situation, what is Ben Bear going to do? Is she going to hire uh, 10,000 extras and then go to, downtown Mexico city or construct a set to have this riot. No, that's not going to, to do it. Yeah. All the choices that she, you know, or that are dictated to her by budget and other constraints. But then again, she's not, she's not keen on painting the rest of the story. She stays tremendously committed to just, Sor Juana and everybody else matters to the extent that they impinge on her or intersect with her. Kind of draping around. It gives such a, a languid, kind of inert feel. Yes, this tracking shot through the these sick beds. Yeah, if you had focused on 
on the uprising at all, it would have been 20 minutes of screen time. Yeah. And they don't actually know what hit the convent. They don't know what type of plague it was. I didn't know that. I thought I was just going to guess that it was you know, smallpox or something. Yeah, that makes that makes the most amount of sense, being that it's New Spain. This person in the back against the wall just looks like a ghost. A race, yeah. And it wasn't just the the sisters who were affected. We mentioned before about how they they when they entered the convent, they could bring pretty much whatever they wanted and, and set up a, an apartment. But a lot of these, these sisters brought paid servants yeah. or indentured servants. And some of them actually had slaves and they yeah, think, uh, one. yeah. And he had one. really, Sorwana had one. Yeah. Wow. And in, included with that was sometimes some of these sisters had up to three servants of, of any type and number. Yeah. And so you're not to, so if there's, if there's 50 sisters, you have to think that perhaps there's 150 plus people because the convent doesn't operate by itself. The convent hires people to, to work there as well. So now this is the first crucifix we see. Yes. In her dominions that I recall. It is. And, and it's, Without her books, she's given it all up, and now she only has Christ. Yeah. Yeah, 93, she gave it all up. And I believe she passed away in 96. Yeah, I think she passed away within a year of signing. Her confession or her... Yeah. Renunciation. And that skull was on the desk again. Oh, there we go. Whereas it wasn't prominently featured back when she was doing well. So good point. That's right. I I, I hadn't noticed that at all. And the real touching moment is her friend, the Vice Serene, had taken all of her collected works to, I believe, Seville in Spain and had them all published. They had gone through them all and actually it went through a rigorous editing process and they published them in, in folios. I think there were three of them. And the first one was published before she passed away. And I think the other two were, were published afterwards, but including the, and the third volume was the, the Philotea uh, controversy and the, the first, first I dream. Correct me there. You got it. Okay. First I dream. Right. And everyone in, in Europe, I say everyone, a lot of the church intelligentsia had really appreciated everything that she'd had and ranging from her sonnets to her plays to her theological work. They really greatly appreciated it. And none of it was controversial. None of it uh, raised a stink in, in Spain or anywhere else in Europe. And it became enormously popular in Italy. Well, uh, it was right in the middle of that current of all the other people doing the same thing. It wasn't anything so radical. And did you notice that he asked her what happened and she didn't say. She just right. said, if you stick around, she dodged it. 
and as if there's no name for it or she's not going to rat people out. Now, this is the scene I hate. This is the one I've hoped to see over 20 years. Without a single thought in your head, unable to speak. It's disgusting. Yeah. And here she's saying, uh, she's not even focusing on what he has to say. What she has to say is, we're running out of laudanum to help the victims. That's her only real response. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think of me. And he's abandoned her. Yeah. Denied her. Negaste. It's even more powerful in Spanish. Um, denied like Peter denied Christ. That's the that's the twist, actually. Ouch. <laughs> So there's a double meaning. Yeah. It it gets translated in English as abandoned, but it's denied. See, now they look still pretty peppy. You're going to see that the third processional, they drop out dead. Here's this enclosed space where the confessional takes place. The confessional doesn't take place in a in a booth. Here, it takes place out in the open. Yeah. I've never for, felt more insignificant. This is a key here too. Afraid of God? No, I'm afraid. I don't know what the church wants. Well, that's, that's key when you have a, a regimented system like that, that invokes fear and it evokes a lot of uh, wondering about what everyone else above you is thinking. Yeah. And you, you try to cater your, your thoughts and your actions that you can survive. Yeah. Fear of yeah. not knowing how to live in the church. Yeah. What does the church want of me? It wants a different one. God wants a different one. Those are two separate Desires. It reminds me of everybody waking up in the in the middle of the night in the in the nineteen forties in in the Soviet Union, wondering, you know, what is what is Comrade Stalin one of me today? Or none? Did you see that? A different no. Juana or no Juana, and then that's that's when she becomes no Juana, ninguna. So this is the flagellations. Each processional gets worse and worse. Bimberga's mm. tracking the intensifying nature of the crisis through these processionals. Yeah, a reenacted passion. Yeah. yeah. Good. And the archbishop was a flagellant. It was once a week. He would flagellate himself. Wow. And he wore a, a hair shirt. A hair insert. Those were in fashion among certain people. I mean, Thomas Beckett wore one. That's 500 years before this. 
can one love too much? That's a great question. And here she's equating loving a person, loving a human being with loving God. It, it, that seems like such a, a logical conclusion of belief, but not in the hierarchy that she's in. God, in her reckoning, God made her capable, in fact, required that love of her, inspired that love in her. She didn't do it on her own without him or against him. Command me to do some novels. Yeah. Profane literature. She didn't write anything profane. That he means secular, I think. Ah. Diabolical ideas. I'm guessing that's the uh, the letter in which she defends a, a woman's right to learn and a woman's right to knowledge. That's, that's pretty diabolical. But notice she doesn't say yes. I renounce. She says you you command me to. Yeah. Sell your books to the poor. I didn't know the poor could afford books. No, he said for the poor. So oh, okay. Money goes to them, yeah. Theoretically. And I don't think that she's cut her hair, but her hair looks very short. Yeah, it's in that basically rag. It's under there. Well, everything is so dark and so gothic. Yeah. Here comes the locket. Yeah. The last thing she has. And that is her renouncing. That's her renunciation. The final one. Yeah. All the books are on their way out. Man, somebody had to love Ben better than a lot to put, give her those books. And the last she, thing she's holding on to is right over her womb or her is the Indian headguns. The, the symbol of power of, of the natives of that land. And you could say that womb is, is power. To create yeah. life is power. Yeah. And I think that a whole bunch of this goes back to that original power of women in their bodies. And still it's raining. It's amazing how much the film just slows down in the last five or ten minutes. There's that rag. Yeah. In other words, uh, nobody's got any energy to keep anything white in them, so they dispense with that white habit that you were noticing. See how the lines have thinned and everybody is listless. 
Yeah, and it really showed you that wide shot showed you who was left in the convent. And I I did read that out of the ten people that were infected, eight died. And this is just, this is a punch to the gut as to how lively she was in the first few scenes. And yeah. you just see that life sucked out of her in the last few scenes. And she was only 46. Less than 50. I can't remember how old. It's amazing the detail that goes into this. You can see the sweat stain across her forehead and the habit. Good. Indeed, you can. But now she, oh, I see. She did it with her left hand. So that she could write with her right. Right. Sign her life away. Or her knowledge. Well, it's also stigmata. Oh. (laughs) That's why I asked you on. (laughs) She's making a a Christ-like sacrifice. That, That had never occurred to me. I'm very eager to get this film in a in a better format. The the distributor who um, who is providing it currently in the United States and with these English subtitles actually has an apology to the beginning of the film. I'm sorry that I don't have a better copy. Yeah. It's been 20 years, so the next time I had I know someone who's going down to Argentina, I'm going to tell them you got to pick up a copy for me. Yeah, and tell them to get another translator and make that first I dream. Right. By the way, I have lots of questions for you later about uh, about podcasting and how you do this. This is pretty cool. I am yours. <laughs> Just like uh, Sorwana belongs to all of us as an inspiration to what we can achieve. And how even the surrender can be itself resistance. What a wonderful film. Yeah. She could have just died. She could have just disappeared. She could have just uh, even been burned by the Inquisition. And all of those would have been less effective, in my opinion than signing this confession so melodramatically. So, so really when you think, okay, how do I, how do I stage my last statement, my last defining moment in, in, the, in the public eye? If it happened like that, like Ben Redden says, 
And I rather think it didn't. I don't think it actually was staged in front of her peers in the convent. I think it was probably before the Inquisition or the tribunal or the, or at least her, those are who are accusing her. That was pretty, uh, pretty spectacular genius. So if we make even our defeats acts of genius, we'll be living her legacy. Teresa, thank you so much for coming on to the Super 70 Podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for hanging out with me and Teresa Van Hoy while we discussed I, the worst of all. Dr. Van Hoy has a book on Amazon called The Social History of Mexico's Railroads. You can find the link in the notes. You can find me, my books, and my blog at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. And we'll meet next time in the park. <laughs>